Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. It's 30 with Murdy with your host, Sweeney Murdy. Welcome back, everyone. This week, another tie-in to Michael Jordan and his baseball career. Obviously, the ESPN series The Last Dance has us all thinking about and talking about Jordan, and his baseball career isn't to be overlooked. His famous summer fling in 1994 with the Birmingham Barons, the AA affiliate of the Chicago White Sox, was viewed as a joke early on, but by the end of that summer, he had hit over 200, barely over 200, but remember, he was 31 years old and was in AA after not playing baseball at all since high school, and even then not against anywhere near the competition he was now seeing. For more on what it was like to be Michael Jordan's teammate that summer in Birmingham, please make sure to check out our last episode with former Barron shortstop Glenn DeSarcina. So what Jordan was able to do in baseball really wasn't an impressive feat, even though it didn't really start out that way. The very beginning was interesting because of the atmosphere, of course. And the man who had the honor of being the first pitcher in the Southern League to face Jordan was John Courtright, a 23-year-old left-hander who had been an eighth-round draft pick out of Duke three years earlier. That's right, North Carolina versus Duke was a juicy subplot to Michael Jordan's first professional baseball game. Courtright, who made one major league appearance in 1995, was pitching for Double A Chattanooga, a Cincinnati Reds affiliate. On the night of April 8, 1994, Courtright faced Jordan three times as Birmingham hosted Chattanooga and Jordan went 0 for 3, striking out twice. For all the details of that famous first game, plus the story of how Courtright went up and in on the most famous athlete on the planet, and then asked for his autograph the next day, here is my conversation with John Courtright. John, let me start by asking you this. What do you remember specifically about the build-up to that first at-bat, and you were going to be in the spotlight as the guy who faced Michael Jordan for the first time? Well, the build-up was... Um unique for me in in two ways one the obvious that in a minor league setting um, we were going to have um, kind of the eyes of Chicago the eyes of the nation um, watching uh, what it what was his first official game you know as much as I, I may not want to say this a lot of people forget the idea that I believe Michael played an exhibition game, maybe White Sox-Cubs. Yep. Um, 
two or so days before and thus missed the first game of what was the Southern League season. Um, and so this was technically, if memory serves, as I age, was the <laughs> second game of the 94 okay. Southern League season. Right. Um, you know, the first game, there was already a, a kind of momentum building in, in Hoover Met um, for that, that uh, participation of Michael. Um, and, and what, you know, a number of folks have to think about is um, Hoover Metropolitan Stadium uh, when it was built, don't know the exact year, but it was a it was a Taj Mahal in minor league baseball. And so, whenever you went to play in Birmingham or in Hoover, um, you, you kind of felt like you were in the big leagues anyway, because the hotel, which was made a little bit famous by Michael, because I believe he stayed at a place called the Winfrey Hotel mm-hmm. during that season which was like, you know, for a young minor leaguer, was like a Ritz-Carlton or whatever it may be. (laughs) And it was attached to a mall. So going to Birmingham to play was a big deal for for most minor league players. The the presence or the knowledge that that Michael was going to be a part of it, you know, took it from an 8 to an 18 real quickly. John, I, I found a quote from you uh, after that first game when you referred to that exhibition game that you were watching and you know, kind of s- scouting a little bit. You said you saw him swing at a 3-0 pitch and you kind of liked to see the fact that he was hacking at a 3-0 pitch. Do you recall that? Um, I recall bits and pieces of um, what I said about that experience. I, I, I have to assume, um, despite being you know, in my opinion, uh, the greatest basketball player ever and one of the most recognizable athletes you know, of our time. Um, there there has to be a certain level of, like, aggressive anticipation to get something out of the way. Um, so I would think that um, for him, there was a, a burning desire, besides his unique competitiveness, to, to maybe get his first hit, et cetera, out of the way. You know, conversely... Um, I, I, I would assume most pitchers, I can speak for myself, we're, we're, we're trying to be just as determined not to be uh, the first one to give up that first hit. Yeah, how, how much did this play into the idea of, you know, I, I talked to, you know, his teammates love him, and his teammates wanted him to succeed. Everybody who's with the Barons wanted him to succeed. But on the other side of this, you're a guy who's in double-A. I mean, you were an eighth-round pick, and you're trying to make the big leagues. How much of your mentality at the time is, I'm going to show him my stuff. He's never seen stuff like this, this guy stepping off the basketball court after, you know, uh, not playing baseball for 13 years. I I don't think, uh, memory doesn't serve that there was much jealousy or animosity, to be really frank. Um, I I think that probably there were times in a locker room where we, we touched on certain things that, you know, maybe this is unfair to someone who was sent back to maybe at that time like Winston-Salem because it was high A and he didn't make the double-A roster as a as an outfielder. Um, but from what you heard from Barron's people, and, and, and maybe let's just be honest, it, it's MJ, um, you, you accepted it a little bit differently than maybe other folks from the outside looking in would have thought. And this must be kind of painful for a Duke guy to say about a North Carolina guy. 
Um, it was, and <laughs> I think there was that was old school Sports Center days, and they did, and I don't have any uh, tangible evidence of it, sadly, but I remember leaving after the game, and they did like remote interviews with a guy used to be announcer, maybe Steve Cyphers mm-hmm. was his name. Mm-hmm. And he was on site, I believe. And they did sports center interviews. And I think he, uh, alongside Kurt Bloom, who was there on site as the Barons announcer radio guy, I think Steve Cyphers was the one that kind of nationally, you know, brought that to the surface as a, as a, as a subplot the the Tar Heel versus Blue Devil, um, and, and and certainly made for good laughs and good jokes all the way down from family and friends. How how much was this a little bit exciting for you? I mean, forget about just facing him, but you're you're a guy who's in Double A, and as I said, trying to make the majors. You're getting a lot of exposure here. People are seeing you, and I, I think I heard you know some of the Barons players said, even said. You know, scouts are coming to watch, and okay, maybe they're coming to watch him, but they're going to see me too. There's a certain amount of exposure you got out of this that maybe you wouldn't have otherwise. The exposure for me was probably uh, cut into a two or three different swaths. One was, you know, unique exposure on TV, which was still in its, uh, I, I guess, maybe infant stages in terms of sports. I. I'm staring at a videotape, uh, a VHS tape that my family had taped off of WGN because I think <laughs> it was broadcast. Um, and because of the last dance, et cetera, um, I'm embarrassed to say I pulled it out with a big box to put it in. Um, so the exposure was very unique in terms of seeing or, or having people tell you they saw you on um telecommunications that were were still a little bit new in terms of the the live sports i think two um what's an interesting story is i pitched the second game because the last day of spring training i had been sent down from triple a to double a um so my mindset as a professional baseball player was candidly not overly excited i was steaming hot mad and and very frustrated with my situation and a little bit maybe embellished but i'm trying to part and parcel my memories together Mm -hmm. the manager his name was pat kelly who i still speak to to this day yeah had essentially said hey because of your mindset in this change um let's just throw you the second game you're not going to start opening day get your legs under you get whatever anger you have out. We got a long season ahead and the only one you're going to hurt um, by not being prepared and, and pitching well every five days is yourself. Wow. And so I pitched the second game, which obviously then changed a little bit of the course of my trajectory from a minor league standpoint. The, the third part of it is, is I was fortunate enough to have been on the, this major league roster for the 94 spring training and the reds were really good that was the strike year yeah um, we were in first place when the game ended at that level in early august um i am uh, far from a celebrity then and, and certainly now but i had been around interesting people 
uh, we had Barry Larkin and we had Deion Sanders and we had Jose Rio. You know, you had been at Duke as a student athlete where we went to four, four national uh, semifinals and, and two national championships. So I had been fortunate enough to be around some unique um, athletes at the highest level. Um, so I felt a little bit more prepared. And, and to your point, it wasn't like overly exciting. But in review, none of them um, measured up to to meeting Michael Jordan or, or facing him. So take me up to what can you remember about, uh, I guess it was the third inning, uh, and he comes up to lead off the third inning. So you're warming up. You know he's on deck. You know he's coming up. What do you remember about that lead up to that? I hadn't thrown very well. As I said, I still had a little bit of, um, I shouldn't be here. I'm going to prove it to the world with every pitch that I should be in, in AAA in Indianapolis. Um, and if you knew me well enough uh, from a catcher, a manager, a pitching coach standpoint, you could probably tell. Um, you know, pitching is, is oftentimes when you talk with young pitchers, it's not throw harder, it's just throw better. Um, and I was trying to throw harder and harder and harder. Um, the early pitches to Michael were uh, poor. Hmm. Um, they were erratic. Um, and I remember a little bit, if, if I got behind, maybe it was 2-0 or 3-0, um, either his first real swing or potentially Sweeney, he had swung and fouled a ball off. Mm-hmm. And... In fairness to Michael, um, you know, there, there was a lot going on. And the the ball didn't have a, a ton of, shall I say, like juice off yeah. the bat. Yeah. Um, and it kind of woke me up to the point where it's like, hey, look, there's whatever it was, 13, 14, 16,000 people here screaming and booing with every ball because they want him to swing the bat to get his first hit. That foul ball or that swing kind of woke me up to the point of, hey, look, hammer the strike zone. Despite who it may be, he, he's presumably not going to beat me, not only because of the odds of hitting, but because of the uniqueness of the situation. And it probably propelled me to get through the at-bat with a little bit more focus. Yeah, he worked the count to 3-2, including that foul ball. And then, uh, and then a fly out to right for his first at bat. So his first at bat wasn't a strikeout, but his next two were, um, and one of them included a, a brushback pitch. That, yeah. Um, yeah, you you remember that one? Yeah, I, I think brushback's a little strong. As I said <laughs> earlier in the podcast, erratic is is more befitting of my sure. outing that evening. Um, but I, I do remember that pitch a lot, and what I've tried to tell folks through the ages is essentially this. I'm a left-handed pitcher at like six feet, two inches. He was a right-handed hitter at six, six or six, seven. For me to throw a trajectory from left to right that basically almost took his head off, that, that's just, let's be honest, a, a horrible pitch yeah, by me. Yeah. Um, and what I chuckle about is I'd have to go back and look, but the catcher, um, I believe, may have come out to talk with me because the, the decibel level of the crowd was you know, rising to a fever pitch. 
and, and the catcher came out and said something to the point like, I'm not sure Michael's ever, you know, faced a, a pitch like that. Mm-hmm. Not that it was Randy Johnson, but you get my drift. And I remember when we went back, his feet were multiple inches further back <laughs> from where he was in the previous at bats or even the previous pits to the point that even with his uniquely long and athletic levers, um, half of the outside part of the plate, there was no way he was ever going to reach. And I, I chuckled to myself after the fact that, um, you know, that was part of opening up the zone, um, certainly unintended. Uh, a couple of strikeouts and three trips. Uh, what do you remember about after the game, all the attention of just, you know, you, you pitched professionally for a couple of years. And as you said, you were in a big environment at Duke and uh, around, you know, high profile athletes there as well, even if you didn't mix with them all the time. Uh, that postgame atmosphere must have been you know, different, unique for you. It was. And I, 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 you know, I, as I said, I think that there was an involvement with Sports Center and a couple other uh, uh, sports television news outlets. Um, and, you know, look, it was whenever you pitch well, you kind of uh, leave the ballpark on a high. Um, I think I had exercised some of the demons, as I had alluded to earlier, that wherever you are, you just have to go pitch. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the biggest point in the aftermath was. I was determined to try to either meet or get something signed mm-hmm. for this occasion. And when we got there probably two days prior, a day before opening day, uh, there was a clubhouse attendant there that had been there through the years. And I think I had actually spent the year prior in the Southern League. So I went through Birmingham a lot yep. and was one of those guys that probably threw boredom um, would would know a lot of people in the clubhouse or Kurt Bloom. I would, I would just chat with them. Um, and when we got there, it was made abundantly clear. There's nothing going to get signed. Don't even ask. Hmm. And so everybody's like, well, this, you know, this is a bummer, et cetera, but hey, it's only the second or third day of the season. Who knows where this thing will go, but that was, uh, made abundantly clear. So, as I said, I talked or gotten to know people through the previous year and the previous couple of days. And I said, I got to figure this out. So an unnamed person said to me, hey, look, Jordan is going to hit tomorrow at about noon by himself on the field. And so I'm not telling you to or not to, but if you thought maybe there was an opportunity to get over and do whatever you want to do early. Just giving you a suggestion Mm -hmm. as a young minor league player. You know, it's not like going to Yankee stadium. I'm not sure I want to go to the ballpark at noon at a a double a (laughs) field. I'm not sure what I'm going to do all day, but obviously Sweeney, these are unique circumstances. So I remember I go around noon and I, I get dressed and I'm going to go out and do my, next day um, distance run. And I'm just going to run around, do pulls in the outfield of Hoover Met. And Michael's hitting, and there's probably 15 people out there. And you may have to go fact check, but I think the names of like, that was back when they had Charlie Lau and other hitting gurus and obviously Tito and those guys. Mm -hmm. 
And so Michael's taking his own batting practice with you know, what's labeled pearl baseballs, <laughs> presumably sent from above in Chicago. <laughs> and everybody's just fielding for him. And there's probably 10 people around the batter's cage, um, you know, people from Chicago, et cetera. He's just working on his craft. So I run for a while and then I sit in what would have been the Chattanooga dugout. And I can tell finally Michael has taken his, his final round, his final swing. And he comes out of the cage and I say, well, I guess it's now or never. So I kind of hop up the steps and I start jogging over to the batter's cage. And I get a few paces from him. And I will never forget this. It's probably only been told three or four times. I get right up kind of in his shadows and he looks up and sees me and I extend my hand. And as I said, I met a number of unique people in the baseball world and, and I was on a major league roster at the time. And Michael extends his hand and he's got some big hands. <laughs> Part of his gifts as an athlete. And I'm getting ready to say, Hey Michael, what's going on? And I say, Hey, Mr. Jordan, my name is John Courtright. And I got totally locked up, about swallowed my tongue. And he said, hey, man, I certainly know who you are. You're the guy that threw up my head last night. <laughs> and I about collapsed on the field. But then he just broke out into a big grin, said, hey, what's going on? Relatively talked like a, a normal human being that I would be, he, he is not. Um, and he said, what can I do for you? And I have a signed ball beside my home office and a couple other artifacts from that time. And I certainly cherish it. Occasionally I'll look at it and it will bring me back to these types of things. But I, uh, I was savvy enough to figure out beating the MJ uh, <laughs> autograph band in Birmingham. And uh, it, it shows a certain, you know, part of his personality. I mean, because, you know, not everybody who goes 0 for 3 and strikes out a couple of times is going to go sign a ball for the pitcher who did it the next uh, next day. Especially one who, I, I guess he took the meaning of it too. He understood that you weren't necessarily throwing at him. But uh, that's not a situation that I think a lot of people would feel comfortable with. No, and, and really the, the easiest way for me to address that is, um, the entire summer and, and even in the fall because, you know, baseball ended at the major league level and that pushed Michael to the Arizona Fall League, which, which I happened to participate in as well. Hmm. And, and Sweeney, I, I never once to a person heard anything bad about Michael Jordan. Hmm. He was so gracious with his, his time more so you know, privately with the Birmingham folks, very gracious with, you know, his good fortune in when the minor leagues then and, and now um, are, are not overly gracious in terms of, you know, economic prosperity. Um, and, and he really worked, um, you know, through the years, people have alluded to other folks that have, um, tried to drop in or in certain ways, whether a verb I'm looking for, you know, join a sport to see where it takes them. Um, I tell you what, for the most part, Michael Jordan very rarely 
was was secluded or did his own thing. It was amazing how much he was in unison with his team, the opponents, the game as a whole. You know, John, I think it's interesting, too, that, you know, you and I are roughly the same age. We're about a month apart. You turn yep. 50 next month. I turn 50 a month after you. Uh, so we grew up watching Michael Jordan in our, you know, kind of middle school years. He was a star at North Carolina. In high school, he was a star with the Bulls. And, and you know, when we were in college, he, he became the superstar, started winning titles. Uh, so he is, you know, he we're old enough to know exactly who he is and was at that time. And the players who were in the league are also all younger than he's eight years older than the average player in the Southern league at that point. You know, there's, there had to have been a sense of awe with everybody and trying to work through that just to compete. Because once you get around the fact that he's there, this is still your job, John. This is still everybody else's job. Your livelihood is at stake here. A lot of people are trying to get around this fact, and I can't imagine it was easy to just push that aside. Um, I don't want to say it was easy, but I think if you look at it in a different prism, you know, minor league baseball in May and June and July, it can be about 100 degrees and about 101 humidity Mm -hmm. and on a Wednesday night uh, occasionally when you're playing every day it may not be overly exciting despite being a professional sport as a participant but what Michael did was instead of the the awe and the wow that you had to deal with or get over but he brought every day excitement to the ballpark whether it was through fans interest or whatever could happen tonight could reach back home in the news uh, because of what Michael did or did not, you you maybe raised your game. And so in some ways, which I think is an undercurrent in sports, you know, when when you play against the best, maybe you raise your game. Was he the best baseball player? Eh, Maybe, maybe not. But he was the best. And because of that, it brought better focus, maybe better preparation, and, and frankly, maybe better play. You were promoted shortly after that. I think you only made three more starts at Double A. So, did you face him again at all that year? Or fall I did or not. Um, I did not. I, I, you know, thankfully had the good fortune of of getting promoted, hmm. and then you know, as I touch on and. In this week where there's just been so much about him again, I, I've even gone back on the Internet and tried to piece things together. Um, you know, when, when the game ended in August 8th or 10th, whatever it was, um, you know, the minor leagues were, were the only game in town. Yeah. And think how fortunate we were um, to have him as like, you know, the bell cow of the minor leagues mm-hmm. um, in order to um, – somewhat maybe uh, fill a void between the minor leagues and and what was no longer Major League Baseball. Um, And, you know, again, however you view his his participation, his role, he kept the Southern League, but in in some extension, a lot of the minor leagues relevant in August and September. And then I went back and and looked at some things because I was looking at my uh, fall Arizona league roster and mm-hmm. chuckled at some of the names that I had forgotten about. 
But I saw a blurb that that year in the Arizona Fall League, the attendance, I think, was just a tad below what had been the cumulative attendance of all the Arizona Fall League seasons up to that point. (laughs) And so when you're out in the Arizona Fall League, which is a league that in theory was built by Major League Baseball to have further development for you know, the next upcoming class of what they think are major league players. You know, why I was invited, I have no idea, but that's <laughs> another story. Um, but, but the idea, those are leagues that if you follow baseball in the fall, there could be four people in the stands, and it could be a mom and a dad and a, and a, and a lady friend and, and, and one fan that's very passionate. To have fans follow Michael in that type of condensed setting, honestly, I have to believe it raised the level of play and and raised players' games that probably and hopefully changed their trajectory for the good. I'm curious where you rank this personally compared to your Moonlight Graham moment. The following year, you made one big league appearance, and it was your last big league appearance. Um, you know, that is certainly the goal of everybody who puts on the uniform, uh, but not everybody got to experience what you did in the Southern League the year earlier. So where do these two events rank for you? Well, it's interesting. I, I, I try to be facetious in telling folks that I don't think when you're, you're lucky enough to get drafted or, or signed professionally that you wanted the highlight of your career to be a minor league moment. <laughs> yeah. But I, I do think, you know, upon reflection, um, it, it was it was a very significant thing, um, and it, it's you know like the the, the world turns sometimes in, in the business that I'm in now. At one point in time, we had merged with you know David Falk and Fame from a sports agency standpoint. Um, had crossed paths with with those that are still a part of of Michael's life and Curtis Polk and St. Portnoy and people like that. It, it's there are like every eight, 10 years, something pulls me back and kind of the, the totality of that moment uh, it, it is very unique in my life. And, and, and as I meet players, you know, certainly a, a business card is not defined by moments in life, but, you know, Sweeney, it occasionally gets brought up or I'll be sitting at a meeting with someone in those darn 30 for 30s yeah. run again yeah. at the most unique times. Yeah. And I'll get like 10 texts from from clients or people alike that say, hey, I'm watching this show. Mm-hmm. Is this you? Yeah, that's exactly um, the way I found you. I mean, I, I was not intending on this at all. I was watching the 30 for 30 in prep for an interview that I did with Glenn D. Sarcina, who was his teammate in the shortstop yeah. on the Barons. And as I'm watching and listening... Your name is announced by the, you know, um, yeah. uh, by the radio announcer that you talked about, Mr. Bloom. And uh, it just trails off. And all, if I'm not paying attention, I, I might not yep. hear that name. because That's how brief your mention is in this. But, you know, the wheels start turning and put two and two together. And this is why you and I are talking. So it's it does come up, I guess, every once in a while for you. Yep, and I, you know, I, I'd be remiss, you know, in saying this. You know, I, I don't want to ask my own questions during a, a podcast. <laughs> but, um, you know, early on, uh, not only that that first game, which was the second game, or um, following it from afar, or talking to guys because Chattanooga and Birmingham would play quite a bit during the course of the way the the leagues were set up. Um, 
you know, early on, the levers that made him the best basketball player, whether it was scoring, uh, movement, passing, and defensively, he's just he he was so gifted physically, um, let alone the obvious just knowledge of the game. But those levers for for you and I who are in the baseball world a lot, th- those aren't always the greatest of attributes, mm-hmm. um, uh, and so it was hard for him to get on time, and. What I've always held to is when I left him in Birmingham and then when I saw him play a bunch in Arizona during what would have been, so that went from April to seeing him again a lot in October, November, and maybe even December during that fall. Mm -hmm. Um, I've said this, if there were no names on the back of the jerseys um, by the end of that fall league, I could see a scout have, have looked at the player and said, hey, I think the guy's got a chance to play in the big leagues. Hmm. Um, running, throwing, catching, he had smoothed out a lot of those things for the obvious. You know, he just felt more comfortable. He had more repetition. The, the biggest thing with Michael, it, like anything, a high school hitter, a college hitter, is just the ability to be a consistent hitter. And... A lot of the studies are the the longer levered, taller guys. It's harder. There are fewer successful guys. And that's the one thing. He was miles and miles better by that fall. Um, But when someone says he would have done this, he would have done that, frankly, Michael probably could do whatever he wanted to do. That would have been the biggest, like, baseball adjustment is being able to get, like, the barrel in quickly – and keep it through the zone for as long as you possibly can, because that's really the art of hitting. John, the last thing I want to ask you is about this. Um, you spent your life in the game, and you know you've seen a ton of people who were gifted, were touted, yet didn't have the ability to go past a certain level in the game, uh, whether whatever level of the minors or uh, even reaching the majors and not reaching stardom. There are a lot of reasons people don't succeed uh, because the game is hard. So given that, how impressive should it be when at the time a lot of people are saying, wow, look at what a lousy baseball player he is. He only hit 202. He hit 202 in double A after not picking yep. up a baseball bat for 13 years, John. I think that gets lost on so many people. I, I think it highlights you know, why there's a 10-part series. Yeah. I, he, he's unbelievably gifted from a physical standpoint, but his competitiveness and his ability to get literally everything out of those around him um, is it's just unheard of. And, you know, my kids this week before the documentary, you know, asked me, they, they read where Michael maybe said something like uh, the last dance, it, it may show a part of me that people won't like or something like that. I don't know what exactly was said. And as we watched it, I said, what you guys have to understand is, his competitiveness is something that he is so end result driven that he was end result driven that if he's going to do anything, and that's what we've always heard because when there would be social situations with Michael, like in Phoenix, there was a lot of playing pool in Scottsdale and things like that. And he would invite just my last aside, he would invite the entire Foley 
hmm. to places that essentially he rented out the entire fall season because he needed some privacy. He needed, in his own way, a detox time. I'll never forget it was he and Charles Barkley together every yeah. night. Yeah. And, you know, at first, the baseball world in, in the fall uh, was all new to the Michael Jordan hysteria. The Southern League kind of then had run its course. And so no one, you know, we started over in terms of, well, can we talk with him? Can we interact with him? Could we hang out with him? And what's interesting is he had gotten to know, like, you'll have to fact check, like Jason Giambis and some people like that mm -hmm. through USA Sports stuff. Mm -hmm. And Jason had said when they were together, Michael was maybe on the dream team or something of that nature. But he always was very real and very normal with the baseball guys. Like, hey, how's things going, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And Jason was on my team in the fall league. Okay. And so by the end of it, or within weeks of the Arizona Fall League, there were a couple places no longer existing in Scottsdale that Michael literally would say, hey, anybody that wants to come, food and drinks on me, don't sweat it. I, I just would like to be around people that will just accept me for who I am. But if you're going to come to the big boy pool table, you better bring your game and you better bring your money. Um, and that's how he... I assume operated in just about everything that he did. You don't have the ball, do you? That uh, from the strikeout. Do you know where that? Uh, uh, the strikeouts? No, I don't no. think so. I I have, as I said, uh, a ball and mementos. I just don't know which one it is, and mm -hmm. um, so we'll see. My uh, hopefully my kids don't go out and play catch with it sometime or something like that. But we'll we'll see where that goes, Sweeney. My thanks to John Courtright, who after his seven-year professional career as a pitcher went into the legal side of the game. He's a player agent now with ISC, representing Nationals left-hander Patrick Corbin and a number of other major leaguers. If you missed last week's episode, please check out the conversation with Glenn D. Sarcina, former shortstop for the Birmingham Barons. You can find that episode and many more on the 30 with Murdy archive at radio.com. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please subscribe and review and all that jazz. And until next time, I'm Sweeney Murdy. Thank you all for listening, and please continue to stay safe. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road, the steeper the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.